I gotta say, reading this chapter without air conditioning, I really felt like I was immersed. <laughs> At least it was breeze now. It's closed. True. Immersive podcasting, except we're the ones who are immersed. <laughs> yeah. another episode of is fitz happy i'm luke and i'm emma this week we're discussing chapter 21 salvage they are making the boat or cleaning up the boat yeah getting ready to fully fix the boat (laughs) yes we're starting off in brashen's head here and we jump over to malta's then we see amber's as well or not amber's althea's so a lot of the point of view of uh the people fixing up paragon talking a lot about the ship this time yeah about paragon specifically yes as i mentioned we are in brashen's head to start off with and it is an incredibly hot day out and it is morning and they are trying to dredge up this ship that has been on the beach for 30 some years or a little under 30 years i guess now and get it into a position so it can be floated because they can't do much until it's they know what to fix. Right. And they are also, importantly, waiting on high tide to be able to get him in the water to see what all needs to be done right. on that end. So they are beholden to the tides, but still the time is ticking and they mm. need to get things done. So Yeah, only the highest of the tides barely touched him now. So they need to wait for the highest tide possible and then just dig out the rest of the sand (laughs) so more water can get to him and on a very hot day that is a bit of a challenge yes especially when paragon has the reputation he does right so we start with brashen he is not in a very good mood he is made even more in a bad mood by both the weather being so hot and the people moving slow because of it. Mm -hmm. He's really feeling the time crunch. And the solution itself. In here, he thinks, a man could describe the whole operation in a breath or two. Then he could work for a solid week and be no closer to the solution. So it's easy to say, but there's lots of work to do to get it done. Right. So all around him, men toiled with shovels and barrows. Heavy timbers had been floated in on yesterday's high tide. Securely roped together, they awaited use on the beach. So there's a bunch of people scurrying all over him. And after years of lying on his side, Paragon had... There there was bound to be some shifting of planks, right? The wizard wood is sound wood. It's uh, resistant to rotting. And he's made up a lot more wizard wood than normal ships. So most of it should be good. But... You won't know until you, won't you know. can see. And I will say, I don't think he's resting on his side before now. They're slowly tilting him to be on his side. Yeah. He was at an he was angle. Canted, though. Yes. Yeah. I always have pictured the angle to be like vertical, though. I don't know why. I guess it makes way oh. more sense to be tilted sideways. Yeah. I thought I always thought it was tilted sideways. But whenever I read this, I see it as like he's pushed at an angle uh, like the figurehead is up further than it should be from the beach Mm -hmm. no i didn't think that at all i thought always to the side because they would have uh dragged him up there right and chained him 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I guess I just didn't read it that closely the first time. I'm not really sure, but yeah, this time through it's like, oh, hey, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they are slowly tilting him more and more onto the side so they can get more support underneath and shovel away the sand there and eventually get him out into the water. Right. And throughout all of this, Brashen is... I mean, I, I don't want to say it's uncharacteristic of him, but uncharacteristically moody. I think Brashen is kind of a Debbie Downer most of the time anyway. I don't think that's too uncharacteristic of him, but he's even more so today. Whenever we're in his head, it's clear right from the start. He is he's in stressed. a mood. He's, yeah, <laughs> stressed and cranky, Yeah, which is fair enough. Yeah, he's uh, going through send and withdrawals yes. a bit and uh, small relapse <laughs> and everything like that and dealing with people who don't want to work. Right. And a pretty hopeless situation, really. So he's thinking once he was upright and floating free and he prayed Paragon would float freely, the real work would begin. The entire hull would have to be trued up before it could be recocked. Then a new mast would have to be stepped. Brashen abruptly stopped the chain of thought. He could not think that far ahead or he would become completely discouraged. One day and one task at a time were all his aching head could handle. He absentmindedly ran his tongue about the inside of his lower lip, feeling for a piece of sindin that wasn't there. Even the deep sores from the addictive drug were starting to heal now. His body seemed able to forget the drug faster than his spirit. He longed for Sindon with an intensity as relentless as thirst. He'd traded away his earring for a stick two days ago and regretted it. Not only had it set him back in forgetting the drug, but the Sindon had been poor quality, no more than a tease of relief. Still, if he'd even had a shard of silver to his name, he would have not been able to resist the urge. The only coins he possessed were those in the bag that Ronica Vestret had entrusted to him. Last night, he'd awakened drenched in a cold sweat, his head pounding. He'd sat up until dawn, trying to rub the cramps from his hands and feet while he stared at the dwindling purse. He'd wondered how wrong it would be to take a few coins to set himself right. The Sindon would help him stay alert longer and have more energy for the task. Towards dawn, he had opened the bag and counted the coins out into his hand. There, he had put them back and gone into the galley to brew and drink yet another pot of chamomile tea. I want to say that I, I, this will sound wrong. I enjoy reading this part of Brashen's journey, not because I enjoy seeing him suffer, but I really like seeing a depiction that feels more realistic of somebody who is trying to stay away from an addiction. Right. Um, not that we haven't seen that already with Fitz and the um, magic system, but I think this feels a little bit more real world and tangible it's because it's a bit more straight applicable you know right yeah <laughs> and i guess i should preface this by saying i have never personally dealt with addiction right but i think i have a family member that has dealt with it and this feels to me a lot like what i imagine they have gone through in the past and i really appreciate that we have a character who is dealing with addiction and the withdrawals and it isn't pretty and it isn't easy. It's not, he decided to quit. And so it's done. Right. I think I really appreciate Hob for showing addiction 
in a realistic way and showing that it is a battle and a choice you have to make every day. And with a relapse in there. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and it doesn't make him any less of a person. It doesn't make him less of a human being. Right. And he's still trying. And like, even as, as upset as he is and as downtrodden as he is, I think it's still good to see him realistically persevering and, getting through this journey and he is trying his best to become sober. And I think that's really impressive and really hard. And it's good to see that he has that, I guess. I don't know. I just think it really speaks to Hobbes writing abilities and Mm -hmm. ability to make characters realistic and more three-dimensional because this is something that he's dealing with and it affects the whole chapter, his withdrawal and, crabbiness of not having this drug and needing that crutch and trying to stay away from it is really prevalent and really shapes how he interacts with every other character throughout this. And because we have seen him in more than one chapter, it is very clear how much the, his attitude is being shaped by his want and need of Sindin. I don't know. I just think it's really well done. But it's also not just like the only driving factor, right? Exactly. It doesn't um, consume him and it doesn't become his personality because he's also dealing with a lot of stress here as we are learning. And that shows through as well. Yeah. And I also do want to say that I think it's nice that that is just an aspect of Brashen. That is not the aspect of Brashen. Right. So he puts the coins away, brews himself another pot of tea in his recollection here, and Amber is sitting there whittling and wisely said nothing. He was still amazed at how easily she had adapted to his presence. She accepted his coming and going without comment. She still occupied the captain's cabin, time enough to make that space his own when the paragon floated free once more. For now, he had slung his hammock in between decks. Living in the canted ship became more challenging daily as the angle of the deck grew ever sharper. So, quick question. Do you think Amber is so good at dealing with Brashen right now because this is very Fitz-like of him? Maybe. Coming and going, not being able to sleep, drinking a lot of tea (laughs) to deal with his... This is a very unique situation for Amber, right? Yeah. Being surrounded by living not with one person, but two people choosing to live with Paragon. Right. And having another presence aware when we know Beloved loves private spaces and giving away that private space to buy Paragon. So Amber is in a unique situation as well and handling it quite well. Yeah, I think... Having the the captain's cabin to herself probably helps a little bit. Yeah, true, true. Because there is some semblance of privacy, although Mm -hmm. obviously not full privacy because Paragon is living. And also Amber is a different person or aspect, I guess. Yeah, that's true. But his musing is interrupted by Amber exclaiming, Paragon, no! Her voice raised in disbelief coincided with the immense crack of a timber. Voices cried out in alarm. Brashen scrambled forward, arriving on the foredeck just in time to hear a timber strike ringingly against a rocky outcrop of the beach. All around Paragon, the workers were retreating from the ship. They called warnings to one another, pointing not just at the thrown timber, but at the trench it had made in the beach when it landed. 
Without a word, his face expressionless, Paragon refolded his thick arms on his muscled chest. He stared blindly out across the water. Damn you, Brashen cried out with great feeling. He glared around at the workers. Who let him get a hold of that timber? A white-faced oldster replied, We was setting it in place. He reached down and snatched it away from us. How and saw did he know it was there? So Paragon is uh, scaring away the workers as best as he can because he's still sulking. He does not like the result of the sale, doesn't like the sale itself, really. Right. He's a very upset person right now, and he's doing his best and doing it quite well to, uh, <laughs> to scare away the workers that Brashen finds each morning. Right, and to get in the way of progress happening. Yes. The last time we saw Paragon, he was not talking after Amos Ludluck had yelled at him right. and basically thrown in his face that he's not loved or family to her. He's still not talking now. Yeah. So however long it has been, at least a week or two, probably more, he is not talking to anyone of the three adults. If it had been the ship's first display of sulkiness, he might have been surprised. But every day since they began, he had created one delay after another. His displays of temper and strength made it difficult for Brashen to keep workers. Through them all, Paragon had spoken not one civil word to Brashen. And he's leaning over the railing and out of the corner of his eye spots Althea coming up. And she's looking puzzled at the scene, of course. Doesn't know what's happened. Right. He yells, get back to work. And points at the thrown timber, pick that up and put it back in place. The workers are starting to be very intimidated at this and saying like, nope, not me. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Right. Well, they rightfully point out that he, Bre or Paragon cannot see. So he's not looking where he's throwing. Right. And even if he did care, which they aren't convinced he does, he could hit them. Yeah, he doesn't know where they people are. before. So Yeah. Um, not on this expedition to right, just in fix general. him, but yeah, but their accusation of he, he is known to be a killer. We don't want to work. And so this first worker says, I'm not working anymore. Pay me my money. I'm leaving. Everybody gets up in arms and says, yeah, me too. So Brashin decides he's got to kind of be hard <laughs> and buff and scary to get them back in line. He jumps over the railing and drops to the sand. Didn't let his face show how the pain shot to the top of his skull, <laughs> trying to ignore his withdrawals here. He advances on the men in a show of aggression, praying he wouldn't have to back it up. He thrusts his face in the face of the man who first had spoken and said, You want to get paid, you stick around and finish out your day's work. You walk now, you don't get a copper. He's looking around at them and he's thinking these are the dregs of the taverns. Men who would only work long enough to earn coins for the night's drinking. He had had to offer them better wages than they could get anywhere else to lure them out to the bad luck ship. As the men about him muttered discontentedly, he barked, Take it or leave it. I didn't hire you for half a day's work, and I'm not paying for half a day's work. Get under that timber. Now. And one of them says, you know, I'll work, but not up here, not where you can reach me. I won't do that. So Brashen says, like, okay, you guys go over there. I'll start doing this. Amber and I will take over here. Right. And this is the start of 
seeing, I guess, a lot of the change in Brashin. I, I know I said earlier we get to see a lot of this moodiness seems to be stemming from the withdrawal, but I also think it shows just how different things have become for Brashin since he last sailed with Vivacia. Mm-hmm. He's gone back into this tough, no-nonsense, I'll-throw-a-punch-if-I-have-to sort of leading type. And I don't believe, even if he said last chapter with Brashin, that he had to be this way for Captain Vestret. And I don't think Captain Vestret would have approved of using force. I mean, obviously the situation is different, like Brashin himself had said, but I just, it's really interesting to see how he has gone to this fear is the best way to control people. Hmm. It just seems to be a thing with sailors. I mean, we see it from, we've talked about this before, I think, early on in the books. It seems to be a thing with Kenneth. It was a prevailing sentiment through Wintrow's experience on that ship. Mm -hmm. And Brashen's expressed it. Three independent parts. So I can only assume that Robin Hobb is operating with that in mind for the world. That that is how ships are run. Right. That's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. But I do think I do think that that norm was not something that was happening for Efren Vestrit. Well, he probably didn't have to back it up very often, right? He was proved before Fair. he got to be a first mate. And then when he was in the first mate position, everyone respected him. Right. I guess that's fair enough. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I just, I don't love that aspect, I guess. So I, I try to see it as bad habits Brashen has picked up. And, but I guess you're right. It could just be that's the world. That's the way things are in the society. But yeah. I also find it interesting that Althea is so adverse to it and so shocked by it. I mean, she worked as a ship's boy. She's naive to it, I think, mm. more so. Okay. Because she she's coming around to it a little bit right because she worked extremely hard and was tested very hard as a ship's boy right and i think a lot of our discussions centered around althea with this in mind were from the first book before she had a lot of those experiences mm-hmm. when okay. brashen was saying you don't know sailing and kyle was saying that too in two different parts right and we were kind of understanding oh yeah althea doesn't know actual sailing because her dad just let her run around and do whatever tasks she wanted for a couple hours and then switch. Well, more recently, she also had the disgust at Brash and saying he'd have to knock around some people. Right. So she has been very naive in terms of people in general. I think Brashen is just a bit more traveled. Like he had to explain that there were rough taverns in Bingtown and pickpockets in Bingtown because Althea didn't know. Right. You know, he, that's fair. He just had, and she should understand, right? Cause she went through the experience with the crimpers at the other right, town right. with Brashen. But I still think that she is an optimist and holds a romantic view about Bingtown being like an upstanding city when it's also going to have its dr- drunks and, you know, the scallywags, right. people who would sail a bad luck ship that could kill you. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. So I think Brashen is being a little cynical, but more pragmatic in that sense. Okay. Sure. But he comes up with that aggression and stalks towards them and basically says, you know, if you guys don't have the courage to do it, 
Amber and I will take care of up here. You guys work back there. And this is where Paragon slowly smiles, an evil smile, and says, Some prefer a quick death, some a slow one. Some don't care if their sons are born legless and blind like this cursed ship. Pick up your mallets and work on. What care you about what happens tomorrow? In a lower voice, he added, Why should you expect to live that long? Just being, trying to be as creepy and ominous and dramatic as possible. And Brashen has had enough. He just spins on him and says, are you talking to me? All your days of silence and then you say that to me? For an instant, the paragon's face changed. Brashen could not say what emotions was displayed there, but it froze his soul and squeezed his heart. An instant later, it was replaced with a supercilious stare. The figurehead took a breath and settled into stillness. Brashen's temper snapped. The brightness of the day blazed inside his skull, igniting the pain to unbearable heat. He snatched up one of the buckets of drinking water that the workers had left near the bow. With every ounce of strength he had, he dashed it in Paragon's face. The entire ship shuddered, and Paragon gave an angry roar. Water dripped from his beard and ran down his chest. Below him on the sand, Brashen dropped the now-empty bucket. He roared at the ship. Don't pretend you can't hear me. I'm your captain, dammit, and I won't tolerate insubordination from you nor anyone else. Get this through your wooden head, Paragon. You're going to sail. One way or another, I'm dragging you out into the water again and putting canvas on your bones. Now you have a choice, but you'd better choose fast because I'm all out of patience. You can go out of here listing and wallowing, sulking like a brat, and the whole damn fleet will watch you go that way. Or you can lift your head up and sail out of here like you don't give a damn about anything that anyone has ever said about you. You have a chance to prove them all wrong. You can make them eat every foul thing they've ever said about you. You can sail out of here like a blood, like a Bingtown live ship and will go give some pirates a bloody bad time. Or you can prove they were all right all along and that I was the fool. I'm telling you this because that is the only thing you have a choice in. You don't get to decide whether you're going or not, because I'm the captain, and I already decided that. You're a ship, not a flower pot. You were meant to sail, and it is what we are going to do. Are we clear on that? The ship just clenches his jaws and crosses his arms, and Brashen grabs the other bucket, and with a grunt of effort, dashes it up into the figurehead's face. Is that clear? Brashen bellowed. Answer me, damn you. Everyone is transfixed with awe, waiting for him to die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and Althea had gripped Amber's arm. The beadmaker's eyes blazed with outrage. Only that hold kept her from charging out between Brashen and the ship. With a sign, Althea warned her to keep silent. Amber clenched her fists, but kept her tongue still. It's clear, Paragon finally replied. The words were clipped and unrepentant, but he had answered. Brashen clung to that tiny triumph. Good, Brashen replied in a surprisingly calm voice. I leave you to think about your choice. I think you can make me proud. I have to get back to my work. I intend that when you sail, you'll look as sharp as the first time you were ever put into water. Maybe we can make them eat every slur they ever uttered about me, too. And there it is. Just as he made fun of Althea last chapter we saw him. It's more about his reputation than Paragon, and he's kind of projecting. A little bit, but I think there are two peas in a pod in this situation. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> it definitely is wanting him to be able to fight back 
against right. the yeah. mean things that are said. And I do believe that this whole reaction stems from a place of love for Paragon that has been brought about from exasperation and days on end of Paragon acting the way he has. Oh yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I do think at the heart of the matter, this is a little bit projection on Brashen's part. Well, he turns back to Amber and Althea with a grin and neither woman returned it. After a moment, it fades from his face and he takes a breath, shakes his head in resignation and speaks only to them saying, I'm doing my best with him the only way I know how. I'm sailing. I'll do or say whatever I must to get this ship in the water. Maybe you two need to decide how badly you want this to happen. But while you're thinking, we're the bow work crew. Maybe tonight I can hire some new workers who aren't afraid of him, but I can't waste daylight on it now. He pointed at the flung timber. We're putting that back in place. And in the quietest voice he could summon, he added, If he thinks you're afraid of him... If he thinks he can get away with behaving like this, we are all lost, Paragon included. And I think, honestly, he's right. Paragon is dangerous, but he's acting like a tantrum-throwing child, making snide comments, ignoring somebody outright, not talking directly to them. This is the first time in days that he's responded directly to Brashen with not outright hostility. (laughs) Fair. So... Honestly, tough love. Okay. So you think... I don't think Amber's way where she wanted to like protect and coddle Paragon was mm-hmm. going to work. Maybe it would work in a couple years. Okay. But not in the month that they needed to work. Interesting. I, I feel really conflicted because I personally don't feel like it's ever okay to treat people that way, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I understand that obviously these are special circumstances and Paragon is kind of not a person, but he is a living being and has reason that he can be reasoned with. So I don't know. I guess it's hard because we don't know what has led up to this. We haven't been able to see how the three Brash and Amber Althea have been trying to interact with Paragon Mm -hmm. to make things better. We don't know what that has looked like building up to this. So I don't know if they've tried like gentle parenting style. (laughs) Right. Right. But it is really hard. I don't, I don't love how tough Brashen is being. I don't, I especially don't love him throwing water at Paragon's face twice. The first time I don't love it, but it's maybe excusable. The second time it's, really disrespectful to me personally. (laughs) I don't know. So I don't love that, but it's, I get, I think I agree with you that tough love needs to be used. And I understand where Brashen is coming from with, if he knows you're afraid, everyone is lost because I think, like you said, I think that part is true, but I just Mm -hmm. don't know if he's going about it the right way. And I feel like, maybe it comes from a place of that's how his father talked to him. And so that's how he's thinking. That's what tough love is. This is what you have to do. This is the only thing that gets through to people. I don't know. I just, I look at it more like this is the intervention, right? Okay. It's going to be rock bottom for a bit, but this is rock bottom and we're going to all help each other out of it. Okay. (laughs) So get with the program basically. Yeah. Well, and I guess, 
I do agree that sometimes people do need the harsh reality. I think you do have to mm-hmm. talk straight to people and say, listen, this is what's happening and you need to, like, these are your options. But yeah. one option is not just sulking here forever. And so, like, I do appreciate that. I just, I don't know. I don't absolutely <laughs> love the way, which is there a perfect way to tough love somebody? I don't know. But I guess this is the tamer of the two interactions <laughs> that Brashen has with Paragon slash about Paragon. So this one, I guess, gets a pass. <laughs> so he he's recalling that it is a tough day. It's very hot out and they are working relentlessly. He drove his body relentlessly, punishing it for its unceasing itch for Sindon. If either Althea or Amber had asked for quarter, he could have given it. But Althea was as stubborn as he was, and Amber amazingly tenacious. They matched the pace he set. More, as they worked under the nose of the figurehead, they included Paragon in the conversation, ignoring his stubborn silence. The efforts of two mere women and their lack of fear seemed to shame the hired workmen. First one, and then another, came to join them at the bow. When Amber's friend Jack walked out from town to see what they were doing, she gave them a couple of hours of her strong back as well. Clef came and went underfoot as often as he was helpful, brash and snarled at the boy as frequently as he praised him, but his stint as a slave had given him a thick skin. He worked doggedly, handicapped more by his size than any lack of skill. He had all the makings of a good hand. Against his conscience, Brashen would probably take him along when they sailed. It was wrong, but he needed them. He needed him. So they are working hard, and they are stepping... Seeing the women work alongside them, they're stepping up the pace of their own labors. Do you think, when it says, the efforts of two mere women and their lack of fear seem to shame the hired workmen, is Brashen thinking in the point of view of the workmen? Or is he also kind of being like, whoa, two mere women can do this? I don't think it's phrased like that. I think it's phrased like your first one. Okay. Where it's just kind of like a, you know, the workmen are shamed because two mere women, you know, from the workmen's point of view. Okay. Yeah, because I just found that so odd and like almost uncharacteristic of Brashen to be like, I can't believe two mere women are keeping up with me. <laughs> but I guess the object yeah. of that sentence is like the workman's shame, right? Like it's right. it's centered around the workman in general. So that's how I read it, at least. That's fair. No, I just found that interesting. And I found it interesting, too, that he is so surprised that Althea and Amber can keep up with him. Yeah. And not to be mean to Brashen because I don't want to kick him while he's down, but he's not real and can't hear me. So <laughs> I don't necessarily know that he's in the best shape of his life right now. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> he was first mate on a pirate ship. I don't think he was working out every day. You know what I mean? Not that I'm not saying he's not strong or that he has to be weak in order for the two women to be able to keep up with him. But I don't necessarily think he's at his peak performance levels, especially with the withdrawals happening. So I just, I think it's funny that he's like, wow, they're really keeping up with me. And it's like, yeah, Brashen, (laughs) why wouldn't they be able to? I don't know. Well, he's definitely surprised at Amber Mm -hmm. because that is surprising because Althea was a sailor and he knows she's stubborn and won't give in. Right. And he worked with her on the the Reaper. On the Reaper. Thank you. But Amber... You don't know. Yeah. And I guess it's um, only Paragon and Althea that know she's like crazy strong. So Mm -hmm. do you think, sorry, this is a weird tangent, but do you think that Amber 
is super strong because she's a white and that's like a white ability? Or do you think it's just Where do from, we know that she's super strong? She asks Althea to help her carry wood in the marketplace whenever they meet uh, when Althea first comes back. Yeah. And Althea comments that it's actually way heavier than it looked and she like is struggling a little bit to keep it upright. And mm. so I'm not saying like a superhumanly strong, but just, okay. okay. That's what I was. Sorry. Yeah. Just she's stronger than most for the slightness of her appearance. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I would say something, we don't know anything about the whites in general, but I would say something about like human genetics of like men have testosterone more. So they have, they're in general stronger, but that doesn't apply to beloved. So I don't know. Yeah. Also, Beloved has a completely different anatomy. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the whole thing about it is that I don't even know if he has the same hormones. Yeah, fair. I don't know. Anyway, that was just a thought I had of like, I wonder if whites are like weirdly strong. (laughs) (laughs) So we switch over to Malta, who is also saying that the afternoon is sweltering inside the morning room. Yes. She plucked at the collar of her dress, pulling the damp fabric away from her skin. And she's sitting there with Dello. Dello is being very impolite. Um, I remember when we used to drink iced tea here, and your cook would make those tiny lemon pastries. Dello sounded more fretful about Malta's reduced circumstances than Malta herself. In fact, it rather irritated Malta to have her friend so pointedly noticing all the deficiencies in her home. Yeah, Malta is not happy to be hanging out with Dello. She's just over it. She's so adult now, and (laughs) her suffering is so real that Dello seems insignificant, which, I mean, I'm making fun of, but it's kind of true. Right. No, I think think this is a very mature Malta we get this chapter. Relatively, yeah. It's still childlike in a lot of ways, but I, I do think it's interesting because at one point, Della's point of view would be how Malta was thinking of things. And now Malta is realizing, oh, wow, that's a really childish way to look at things. But it's a little bit more world weary. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, she mentions here, you know, times Malta says times have changed and then ice is expensive, to which Della replies, well, my papa bought two blocks yesterday. Cook is making ices for dessert tonight. Oh, how nice, (laughs) Malta replies. But she's exasperated. She's, first of all, it's super rude of Dello to be like, oh, is it expensive? My dad bought two. (laughs) Okay. Um, But Malta talks about how ever since she's had to learn the books, she hated learning the books, but she understands money better now. Mm -hmm. And it's ridiculous of Dello to be so frivolous and she can't believe Della's family is clearly so well off and not helping them. Right. Yeah. How much of this did Della expect her to take? First, she had shown up in a new dress with a fan and a hat to match. The fan was made of spice paper and gave off a pleasant scent when she used it. It was the newest vogue in Bingtown. Then Della hadn't even asked how the ship was coming along or if they'd received a ransom note yet. Let's go out in the shade, Malta suggested. No, not yet. And she's looking around to see if anyone might be spying. Malta almost sighed. They didn't have serpents to, servants to eavesdrop. 
With a great show of secrecy, Dello pulled a small purse from the inside of the waistband of her skirt. In a lowered voice, she confided, Serwin sent you this, to help you in these troubled times. For an instant, Malta could almost share Dello's enjoyment of this dramatic moment. Then it fluttered away from her. When she had first learned of her father's abduction, it had seemed exciting and fraught with tragedy. She had thrown herself into exploiting the situation to the limit of its theatrical possibilities. Now the days had passed, one after another, full of anxiety and stress. No good news had come. Bingtown had not rallied to their side. People had expressed sympathy, but only as a courtesy. A few had sent flowers with notes of commiseration, as if her father were already dead. Despite her plea to rain that he come to her, he had not. No one had rallied to her. I think this section with Malta is a little bit sad because it is. it is kind of the ruining of childhood almost. Yeah, I I like and do not like this passage for kind of varying reasons. One, it does show good growth, right? Mm -hmm. Like where she's going through in this, what she's thinking about, how she was feeling still or thinking immature thoughts about the theatricality of right. her father's abduction, everything and that we kind of talked about. And now she's just like, well, it's too stressful and it didn't turn out the way I thought it was. So reality's sinking in. Right. But I don't like it because all of this happens off screen. Yeah. I, I don't like that at all. We've had such a journey with Malta and this is the biggest leap that we've seen her take and it all happens in between chapters. Yeah, that's fair. It just makes it feel slightly less earned <laughs> to me. I, I don't know. It's just, we have a great lead up. We show slight improvements in the last chapter, but you could still tell that she was kind of leaning into the, oh, this is, uh, we will find a way to save him and mm -hmm. it'll be all a great story. And, my dad will come home and save us financially still and, you know, everything like that. And then this chapter, she's just like basically Ronica in her head, <laughs> you know, just like, oh, Dello, you're so far beneath me and this is so childish and oh, money problems. And okay, Malta, are you 50 now? Where, like, where does the transformation go besides this paragraph? That's fair. So I'm just sad about that. Yeah, that's a. That's a fair assessment, I guess. Um, I do think, I think it makes sense to me as a reader. And no, yeah, no, I don't. It think, makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you. Like the whole transformation makes sense. It's just a big disappointment that it's one paragraph and then that's it. That's fair. I do. I guess I do wish we got to see a little bit of that realization real time with Malta, but I think. I'm happy that she had it. I think there is a lot of agony happening for Malta. And I think she does talk about how she is. It's the realness of the situation that kind of has given, made her feel hopeless and like, right. this is nothing. And so of course she's just thinking about all the negatives. I think she's in a really maybe depressed state, just kind of what, what hope is there? Because, you know, she did think the world was a certain way. And I, as mm -hmm. much as we gave her crap about it and were annoyed by it, she is a child. And so, of course, all these things happening that are way more exciting than anything she's experienced in the last 
two years while her grandfather has been sick. Of course, there's a little bit of that mystery and edge to it because it isn't real yet. Mm -hmm. And so the setting in of how real things are, I think, is really sad to see. And I I do feel bad for her. I, I feel bad that she is losing that childishness. Right. And how far she's gone from Dello. And also just how crushed she is about the two boys slash men in her life that she thought they could help and they didn't. I will point out uh, that is the one like still childish thought that she has. She focuses all of this around her still. Right. She says no one rallied around me. Right. Yeah. No, she is definitely still self-centered in Mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. But yeah, that is, it is a, a sad loss of innocence and, I think we'll we'll continue to see that and her growing stronger, but this is kind of like her bottom. Yeah. Day after day had ground by in deadly, boring desperation. It had slowly come to Malta that this was real, and that it might be the death knell for her family's fortune. She could not sleep for thinking of it. When she did fall asleep, her dreams were disturbing ones. Something stalked her, determined to bend her to its will. The dreams she could remember were like evil sendings from someone determined to break her hopes. Yesterday morning, she had awakened with a cry from a nightmare in which her father's wasted body washed up on the beach. Could be dead, she suddenly realized. He could already be dead, and all these efforts for nothing. She had lost spirit that day, and had not been able to recover hope or purpose since then. Tintaglia is visiting her quite a bit. Definitely. And... I think this part made me feel really bad for Malta because yeah, definitely. even if we don't like Kyle and we don't think he's a very good person, he is still her dad. Yeah. And he's her hero. Yeah. And he might be dead. I mean, we know as readers that he's not. And she never sees him again. Yeah, I guess that's true. He, she won't get to see him again. But it is it is really hard and sad to see poor Malta, which is kind of funny, like me beginning of the books <laughs> me now poor malta um but seeing poor malta deal with the reality that a real life is at stake right it is a little interesting and to me. her whole family's fortune yes her whole family's fortune which is her future but it is interesting to me that she hasn't thought about Windrow at all oh yeah no <laughs> and she won't for the rest of the chapter not a single thought is wasted on Windrow. it's all about kyle um that's a little funny to me. I mean, it's not funny, but like, seriously, Malta, not even a little thought for your brother. Okay. <laughs> so she takes the little purse from Dello's hands and sits down. Her friend's discontented expression showed that she had expected a more passionate response. She feigned examining it. So now instead of playing into the scene and Dello is the poor actress in it, or not responding how Malta wants. Now Malta is not responding how Dello expected. And just can't, you know, bring up that romantic scenario or play in her head. Right. And I think we really see here the similarities between Dello and Malta and probably why they got along so well. Especially Dello having no problems kind of kicking Malta while she's down and kind of flaunting her wealth while her friend is clearly very not well off and then also being disappointed in the lack of 
acting from Malta. I don't know if Della... I don't think she thinks it's acting, yeah, right? I, I was just going to say, I don't know if Della knows that Sirwin isn't really somebody that Malta's seriously interested in. Well, Malta was, but now she says that yeah. thoughts of Sirwin were not as exciting as they once had been. He hadn't kissed her. Right. So that, I don't... that encounter really brought it down, but I think she was still excited to see him all the time, right? But it was fair. I mean, from, you know, a grown-up perspective, it was obviously a childhood crush kind of thing. Right. But to her, it was real. Right. But I do wonder, I mean, I don't think Malta saw Serwin as endgame. You know what I mean? Like, okay, yeah. she saw him as somebody that would be fun to play with for a little bit. Sure. So even though it was like real feelings in, on Malta's end, I think, at, in some aspect, and I do think there were real... I don't know that just there were there was something real there. I think on the whole Malta didn't think oh, I'm going to marry Serwin. This is because he's the one I'm going to end up up with at the end of the day. Yeah. It's more just, oh, Serwin's really cute. I know him pretty well. And I think it'll be fun to see if he sees me as a woman. And so I don't think Dello knew that. I think mm-hmm. Dello probably thought, oh, my best friend is going to marry my brother. Right. So she says she she still hadn't recovered from that disappointment of Serwin not kissing her. And she's kind of repeating that from the previous paragraph where she hadn't recovered her purpose or hope since imagining her father might be dead. Right. And not only is she upset that Serwin didn't kiss her, but she's upset that Serwin did nothing to help. Because when Althea stood up and asked for help in the Traitor's Council, Serwin didn't do anything he didn't stand up to talk he didn't nudge his father to talk instead he just looked at her with moon eyes and inappropriately stared at her and she's sure everybody noticed and it's super scandalous but he didn't help nothing he did was helpful i think it's important to read what it says in here about it actually because it says she what had what had followed was even worse she had believed that men had power the very first time she had ever asked one to use that power for her, he had failed her. I think that's very important to notice or note because uh, that's the basis of her relationship with her father. Yeah, definitely. And how she was raised in this and kind of her realization that, okay, maybe I can do more. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that is important to point out that she is under the assumption that the women in her family are these horrible women who just want more power and they're not capable of wielding it. It's a men, a man's place to have the power of the family. A man is supposed to be in charge. A man has that right and that ability. But the and, men that she asked didn't have the power, apparently. Right. And so what does that mean for her worldview? It's really shaking right now because how could her dad be wrong? And yet. He was, because there Sirin was, doing nothing. And she's thinking no one had helped her. No one would help her. Free me, and I will aid you. I promise you this. The words of the dragon from the dream she shared with Rain suddenly echoed in her head. She felt a twinge of pain as if a string pulled tight between her temples had suddenly become tauter. She wished she could just go and lie down for a time. Dello cleared her throat, abruptly reminding Malta that she was just sitting there holding Serwin's gift purse. Is that sensation of Malta feeling like there's a string behind her eyes and she needs to go lay down, is that a skill suggestion to go lay down so that Tintaglia can reach Malta through dreams? 
maybe, but dragons are different. They don't use the skill as we know it from the Farseers, right? It's related, and we've talked about that, and they have similar powers, but it's something else. So it could be, but I don't know if we... I guess I'll keep that in mind. I can't recall a command that a dragon does that makes them do something, that makes somebody else do something. I know they can glamour people and kind of entrance them, right? Yeah. But I can't recall someone who is not glamoured getting commanded to do something. Kyle getting commanded to throw his son off the boat by a serpent? True. Yeah, it's not, those suggestions. Yeah, yeah, it's not fully the same, but I feel like that is in the right vein. Okay. I can see maybe this is then, yeah. Because I think it just is kind of out of nowhere that she's like, I need to go lay down and after a sensation behind her head, which... I feel like the only reason it came to mind is because Fitz, whenever he is being attacked mentally, like he feels like people are in his head. It like, I don't know. I feel like there's a similar passage when Fitz is unknowingly having somebody tap Mm. around in his brain. Okay. But I could be wrong. I mean, this is obviously a mental connection. Yes. Between Tintaglia and Malta. So similar wording could be there. Yeah. So Malta is kind of recalled to herself from Dello's clearing of her throat, and Malta tugs on the strings and opens up the gift purse. There were some coins in it and a few rings. Serwin is going to be in big trouble if Papa finds out he gave those rings to you, Della told Malta accusingly. That little silver one is one Mama gave him for doing well at his lessons. She crossed her arms and looked at Malta disapprovingly. I don't understand Dello here. I don't if, think she knew was it what was in it to begin with. And then she hmm. saw it and she's like, oh. How dare you take this from yeah. my brother? But even going forward, she's just so. Because I think it's the lack of reaction from Malta. This is like a completely different Malta. Like she's just like, oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. But I, I, it feels more, I don't know, like Della doesn't approve of Malta and Sir Wynn. Hmm. I really just think it's the lack of reaction and the lack of the show and lack of the intrigue and why should Dello do these little secret dealings if Malta isn't going to reciprocate, you know? Yeah, I suppose that's fair. And usually Malta showers Dello with, you know, compliments and things of that nature too, and she's just not there. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. It is a little unfair of Dello to expect that from Malta when her father is missing, but again, I think... Malta does a really good job of pointing out how immature Dello is in general throughout this chapter. But I also want to point out something that we a little bit skipped over is that in this bag with a few coins and some rings, the bag itself, Malta remarks, was probably specifically picked out for Malta by Serwin. Like he bought this bag for the purpose of giving her the trinkets and coins. And at one point she would have found that really sweet and endearing, but it's just kind of whatever now (laughs) and to me i'm like if you have the money to go buy the bag just give her that money too you know what i mean but which i think malta would agree with but hey sir one is trying to be romantic so Mm -hmm. here's five dollars for your trouble (laughs) oh he he won't find out malta told her bleakly Della was such a child the rings were scarcely worth the trouble of selling them 
No doubt Dello thought this little bag a magnificent gift, but Malta knew better. She had spent the entire morning on the household books, and knew that was that what was in this purse was barely enough to hire two good workmen for a week. She wondered if Sirwin had as little knowledge of finances as Dello did. Malta hated helping to keep the accounts, but she understood money far better now. She recalled the rush of chagrin she had felt when she discovered just how foolishly she had spent the coins her father had given her. They should have been enough for a dozen dresses. Those small gold pieces had been worth far more than what was in the bag. She wished that she had them back now. They would have gone much further toward getting that ship off the sand than what Sirwin had given her. The boy simply did not grasp the size of her problem. It was as disappointing as the lack of a kiss. So, when she got her dress made to sneak off to present herself as a woman. Yes. She had four gold pieces, I think it was. And, like, one or two went to the dress, one went to the shoemakers, and this is all this one dressmaker's like, oh, I have a cousin yes. who will do this. Like, they Ripping her scammed off. her so hard. And she had no idea. She had no idea. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be perfect. This, this is, makes sense. This yeah. is definitely worth the price. Yeah. It does a little bit make me sad that she wasn't given that education before then because maybe that would have helped in this situation but also she shouldn't have been sneaking around behind her family's back to do it in the first place so kind of a little bit on her too (laughs) it's whatever but yeah it is funny to hear just how badly she was taken advantage of when she thought she was being so smart and adult and mature Malta's wondering aloud now in front of Dello, asking, why didn't he say anything? He knows, you know, what the risk we're taking and what we're at. Why didn't he speak up? He did nothing. Dello responds, he did. He did everything he could. He talked to Papa at home. Papa said it was a very complicated situation and that we could not get involved. What is complicated? My father's been kidnapped and we must go and rescue him. We need help. She folded her arms and cocked her head. This is a vestrit matter. The Trell family cannot solve it for you. We have trading interests of our own to maintain. If we invest money in a search for your father, what will the return be for us? Dello! Malta was shocked. The pain she felt was genuine. We are talking about my father's life, the only one who truly cares what becomes of me. This isn't about money and profit. Everything eventually comes down to a profit, Dello declared harshly. Then her expression suddenly softened. That is what my father said to Sirwin. They argued, Malta. It frightened me. The last time I remember two men shouting at each other was when Brashen lived at home. He used to argue with my father all the time. At least, he would stand there like a stick while my father roared at him. A lot of it I don't remember. I was little. They always sent me out of the room. Then, one day, my father told me that Sirwin was my only brother now, that Brashen would never be coming home again. Della's voice faltered. The arguing stopped. She swallowed. It's not like your family, Malta. You all argue and shout and say terrible things, but then you hold together. No one is thrown out forever, not even your Aunt Althea. My family isn't like that. There isn't room in my family for that. If Sirwin had kept arguing, I'm afraid I'd have no brothers at all now. She looked at Malta in a direct appeal. Please, don't ask my brother to help you with this. Please. 
the plea rattled Malta. I'm sorry, she said awkwardly. She had never thought that her experiments with Sirwin would affect anyone besides him. him. Lately, everything seemed so much bigger and far-flung than it once had. When she had first heard that her father was taken, it had not seemed real. She had used it as an opportunity to indulge her sense of the tragic. She had play-acted the role of a stricken daughter, but she had really believed that any day at all her father would come home. Pirates could not really have taken her papa, not brave, handsome Kyle Haven. Nevertheless, slowly it had become real. At first she had feared that he would never come home to make her life better. Only now was she realizing he might never come home at all. Had a little bit more growing up to do, and she did a little bit, bit of it now. Yeah, no, I definitely think it is important that she acknowledged that she didn't really think about how her actions would affect other people. Yeah. Obviously, she knew it would have a, an effect on Sirwin, but she didn't think past that. Mm-hmm. She didn't think about the ripples. And that's super fair. I think that's, I don't think that's something you really think about when you're 13. Right. But no, there's definitely this maturing of Malta we're seeing in real time too of, Oh wow. Things are a lot more. They're a lot bigger than I once thought. Mm. And I do feel really bad for her though, because her best friend is like, who cares about your dad? It doesn't make us any profit. We don't have to help you. Like that's a really crappy thing to say to a friend that, and even if that is how you are thinking, the fact that Dello has no tact to just right. say something a little bit more polite. Well, she's obviously like those thoughts are repeated. Yes. So yeah. And I think it's just from her father. <laughs> yeah. And we see the similarities there again with Malta and Dello and how these girls are learning from their fathers and parroting whatever they're hearing from the adults. Yeah. And in this case, it's who care. You don't have to help friends unless it profits you. I do want to talk briefly about Robin Hobbs' lack of, I don't know, math in general. <laughs> okay. Her age math is just all sorts of wrong. Because we figured Brashen is like 27, 28, something like that, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think we figured this out from doing different things, like not talking about his siblings. Right. He left when he was 14, got kicked out. Mm -hmm. So that was, we'll be generous here and say 12 years. Okay. Maybe 11 years. What age does that make Dello? At the most. She's three. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she remembers this. I mean, I think it's fair to say that you would remember you can, yelling. You you can, yes. But that's at the most. If he's 28, she was one. Yeah. Fair enough. I, like, it's not that important, really. No. Like, it's not yeah. to the story. It's just so wishy-washy. I don't know. <laughs> She's not about the fine details, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's Maybe that's what frustrates me, because she is about other things. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Like, some things... In book one, foreshadow stuff in the last book that she has most yeah. recently published. So, yeah, that's fair to be frustrated with little things like that. But either way, it's not that important. I just wanted to point it but out. That is, yeah, that is a good point. I guess I didn't think about it because the way she talks about it, she sounds more like she was like six or seven. Yeah. When yeah. it happened. But that can't be. And Brashen, last time Unless he saw. Unless Brashen is like 23, 24. 
He could be young. That young. It's possible. And then if he's 23, then Della was about five. How long do we know how long he was with the pirates when he got like a year, I think. Mm. He was like a year at sea and a year with the pirates or something like that. So he's like 16 when he signed up with Vivacia, but he was on Vivacia for like 10 years. They said, I think that's why we determined he was about mm, 27. Yeah, Cause he had been on Vivacia for 10. Yeah. yeah. So I think like the smallest amount is 25 kicked out at 14 a year to sail out and be with the pirates and then leave in that whole year and then sign on with Vivacia. But like that leaves him no time to sail with other people. Yeah. So it's tough. I think nine years rings out in my head for Vivacia, but I'm not sure. Fair enough. And I mean, you have to take into consideration too, that it has been what? two years since this or a year and a I half a since year. this book has started yeah i think a year to a year and a half and Delo's 14 yeah malta and Delo, i think are, well malta i think is still 13 but Delo is a little bit older like a couple months older yeah. yeah so i think she might be 14 something like that to be generous yeah because i think wintro is 14 almost 15 and now he's almost 16? No, no, no. Oh, no. Right currently. now he's like 14, almost 15. I thought I when think. he started, he was 14. Yeah, because Malta was 13. Okay. Well, then that would mean or, that he has to be 15. Or is Malta now. almost 13? I can't remember. There was a passage that we know. talked about this where yeah. Janie and Ronica were talking, and she's like, oh, she's not even a woman yet. She's not even, she's going to be 13 in spring or something. Yeah. So she's definitely 13 now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah. I don't it's, know. it's just not a lot of room to play around with the years and there's a lot of wiggle room where it's stated in the book. Yeah, that's so. true. That's true. But I do think it is fair that she would want to put why Dello is a little bit more harsh in this matter too and why yeah. she isn't supportive mm-hmm. because there is that sort of, kind of familial trauma. Tearing her family apart a little bit more yeah. with her experiments. And I mean, do I think... Sir Wynn is going to get kicked out of the family if he continues to push this issue? No. But does Dello know that? Yeah, no. No, because she doesn't know what happened to get Brashen kicked out. So she probably does think it's just a matter right. of her dad getting angry enough. Yeah. And that's also a big indicator why it's not good to hide things from your children. <laughs> so Malta feels bad, super bad, obviously, and tries to give back the money in the rings. And Della looks horrified, saying, like, I can't do that. He'd know I'd said something to you. He'd be furious. Please, you know, keep it so I can tell him I gave it to you. And also, you know, he asked me to you to write back a note or send him a token or something, too. Please, <laughs> let's keep this going. And then Malta looks at her and is kind of exasperated, right? Like, I don't have anything to give you. Yeah, <laughs> I like, sold it all. You literally just made fun of me for being so poor and not having ice cubes. Like, you think <laughs> I have something to give your brother? And she's sitting here thinking about how she should be making a spectacle of this. She should pace the room and make it sound more eloquent of, oh, I don't have much left to call my own, to mm-hmm. really play up the fact that she needs his help and to play up to Dello that things are really serious and just to play the part. And she just doesn't want to, what's yeah. the point? He's she, not going to do anything. She recalls a, a scene here. 
She had put her bracelets and rings and necklaces out and then sorted them into piles as grandmother and Aunt Althea and her own mother were doing. It had seemed like a ritual for women. The little muttered comments were like prayers. This is gold. This is silver. This is old-fashioned. But the stones are good. And all the little stories they had told one another, stories they already knew. I remember when Daddy gave me this. The very first ring I ever had. Look, it won't even go on my little finger now. Or, Grandmother saying, These still smell so lovely. And Althea adding, I remember the day Papa chose those for you. I remember remember asking him why he was buying perfume gems when he didn't like Rainwild goods, and he said you wanted them so badly he didn't care. They shared stories as they sorted out gold and jewels that were suddenly memories for, of better times. But no one had flinched. No one had held anything back, not even their tears. Malta had even wanted to put out the things that Rain had given her, but they had all told her that she must keep them, for if she eventually refused his suit, then they all must be returned. That morning was both dismal and shining in her memory. Odd. That day she had felt more like a woman grown than any time before then. I really like this scene. Yeah, it's fantastic. I like how it shows Vester Owen coming together. I love how emotional it is. Mm -hmm. It is such a small piece and still shows like their ability to come together and in this time try to find the levity and give stories. Yeah, I think it's it connects with you, obviously. Yes. And me too, because it's something that happens in almost every family, right? You you have a family gathering, you go through old pictures or a box of old things that you found in the attic and you talk about those memories. And the added sadness on top of this is that you know they have to sell them. Right. And they're not going to see them again. And right. it's so sad. I, I'm i like tearing up thinking about it and talking about <laughs> it because I'm a crybaby. But it just is so like just that little extra heartbreak in there of Malta finally feeling like a woman, like she's a, a part of the women of the family. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't really fully understand why that made her feel like a grown up when she's been trying so hard all this time to prove that she's a grown up. She has dressed the part and she's trying to right. seduce men and get her way. But this moment of sincerity, of emotions and not holding back and letting each other be there for each other. That's Mm -hmm. when she felt like an adult. And I think that's really poignant. Mm -hmm. In the days since then, there had been only the reality of the empty jewelry box gaping at her from her dresser. She had things she could have worn a child's ornaments, enameled pins and shell beads, as well as the things from rain. But somehow she could not wear them while the other women of her family went ringless and unornamented. She rose and went to the small writing desk. She found a pen, ink, and a sheet of thin paper. She wrote quickly. (laughs) This made me laugh so hard when I first (laughs) read it. Dear friend, thank you so much for your expression of caring in our time of need. With great sincerity. The words reminded her of the correct thank you notes she had helped pen to those who had sent flowers to them. She signed it with her initials, then folded it and sealed it with a drop of wax. As she gave it to Dello, she wondered at herself. Even a week ago, she would have carefully composed any missive she sent to Sirwin. She would have filled it with innuendos and words that seemed to say a great deal more than they did. She managed a sad smile. The words are bland. I feel much more than I dare commit to paper. There, that would leave him some hopes. It was all she had the energy for on this hot day. 
Della's a little bit disappointed, but she takes the note up her cuff and says, well, I suppose I should go home. And Malta's like, yeah, I'm not much company. I'll walk you out. <laughs> yeah. So there is, I don't know. I did really like dear friend. <laughs> yeah. Dear friend. Thank you for your consideration in our time of need. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mary, thank you for kissing the ring next. Like, <laughs> But to be fair, what did he expect? That wasn't, it wasn't helpful. And especially with how I rich mean, they are. Yes, but how rich his father is. Yeah, but like he doesn't have more to his name than he could have sent her. You know what I mean? Like he gave her some personal rings and stuff, you know, but, two, two workmen for a full week. That's all right. You know? Yeah. But then I, I do wonder if, like Malta said, it is that he doesn't understand the value of money or Probably. if he would like, is he expecting her to go sell his rings so he can go buy them back? Like, <laughs> I, I have no idea. I just am so curious about his train of thought and we don't get to know, but I want to know what was going on in his head. What, was he like, oh, this is a very, oh, this ring is very important to me. My mother gave it to me when I did well in class i'll put that one in like (laughs) okay (laughs) i don't know i just sirwan is so funny to me because he is so dramatic he and malta kind of are a really good match true but i don't know just goofy (laughs) at the door a pony trap and a man to drive it awaited dello that too was new the Trell family was obviously preparing to present Dello as a young woman at the midsummer ball. Malta would pre- be presented at the same ball. She and her mother were using the fabric from several older dresses in the house to create a new gown for her. Her slippers would be new, as would her headpiece and her fan. At least she hoped so. Nothing was certain anymore. She's just thinking of riding to it and Trader Restart's old carriage and another humiliation she is not ready to face. Right. And then as they get to the door, Dello kisses both of her cheeks and Malta's mad because clearly this is something she probably just learned in her etiquette classes on how to become a real woman, which most trader women get that sort of training and Malta never does, which a little bit not true because she did get training from Rach, right? She was supposed to. She didn't really but she just didn't, learn. Yeah, or, and she didn't go to the lessons or whatever. Yeah. But, like, she did have that opportunity and did go to classes for a good chunk of the first book. So it's weird for her to be here. Like, it's just another thing I I'll think, never get. I think it's because she's talking about it explicitly in terms of being presented as a woman. So it, it seems like, as she says, uh, that... Many of the young girls of the better families received instruction in the finer points of etiquette before they were presented. So they must hire a new etiquette teacher for this purpose in general. And that's not going to happen for Malta. That's fair. But like I said, she did get etiquette classes before being. Pre- oh, yeah. Well, Some it would have been before if she would have waited like they asked her to to be presented. But. Yeah, I don't know. She had classes with Rachel on etiquette is all I'm saying. She shuts the door while Dello was still waving her farewells with her new fan. It was petty revenge, but she felt better for it. So she dumps out the coins and the rings on her bed and looks at them again, seeing that they haven't grown, and wonders how she could make this small addition to their ship fund without explaining where it came from. She frowned. Could she do nothing right? She scooped the coins and baubles into the bag and tucked it into her blanket chest. 
she flung herself down on her bed to think. And eventually she falls asleep as she's thinking about everything that needs to be done. <laughs> right. She also says that she feels like she's under a curse because everything is just going so poorly for her, which yeah. again is that hint of immaturity that's still there. There is still her being the center of the universe to herself. Mm -hmm. But yes, then she drifts off to sleep where she has a horrible nightmare. Yeah, she's recounting her disappointments as she's falling asleep. No dashing sea captain father to escort her. No dressing carriage for the ball. Sirwin had failed, failed her. He didn't even know when to kiss a girl. Rain had not come to her. She hated her life. All the problems were too big. She was trapped in a life she was helpless to change. The day was too hot. She was suffocating in its embrace. It was so stuffy. She tried to roll over, but there was not enough room. Perplexed, she tried to sit up. Her head thudded against a barrier. Her uplifted hands met only damp, shredded wood. The dampness, she realized, was from her own breath. She opened her eyes to blackness. She was trapped in here. Trapped, and no one cared. So, Tintaglia grabs her, and takes her in this dream, and puts her into this coffin. Right. And she is panicking, which, fair, I would also be panicking. I think the idea of being in a coffin is really scary, so... <laughs> She tries to calm herself and say, it's a dream, it's a dream, I just have to wake up. Tries and can't. And there was not even enough room for her to bring her hands up to her face. She began to pant convulsively in fear. A whine escaped her. Do you see now why he must free me? Help me. Make him free me and I promise I will help you. I will bring back your father and the ship. All you have to do is make him free me. She knew that voice. She had heard it echoing through her dream since she had shared the dream with Rain. Let me out, she begged the dragon. Let me wake up. Will you make him help me? He says he cannot. I think he would if he could. Make him find a way. I can't. A second layer of darkness was closing in on her as she panted. She was going to faint. She'd suffocate in this dream. Could someone faint in a dream? Could she die in a dream? Let me out, she cried faintly. Please, I have no control over rain. I can't make him do anything. The dragon chuckled, a deep, rich laugh. Don't be foolish. He is only a male. You and I, we are queens. We are destined to master our males. It is the proper balance of the world. Think about it. You know how to get what you want. Take it. Free me. Malta felt herself abruptly flung into darkness. The boundaries around her were gone. She clawed for purchase, but her outstretched hands found nothing. She opened her eyes to her bedroom to a hot summer day. Remember, someone spoke the word right by her ear. She heard it, but no one was there. Tintaglia has been hounding her. Yeah. And trying to get her to realize that she doesn't need no man. She, she's, <laughs> she's a strong, strong independent woman. <laughs> strong independent queen. Yes. No, it is... It is really interesting to have to see this dream and I feel bad for Malta. You can really feel her desperation in this. And oh, yeah, yeah. It's not just her desperation for her situation, but also just she feels so helpless. And I think that's really how she feels. She's not just if she thought she could convince Rain, I think she would have been like, Yes, yes, I'll do it just to get out of the situation. So I think it's really interesting that she doesn't feel like she can right. convince Rain. 
because her hope is gone, right? Her faith in the power that men have is gone. Right. And so I think it's interesting for Tintaglia to use this as a teaching experience of, (laughs) uh, of course you have power and it's, you know how to get what you want. Yeah. Just, just wheel it over it. the men. It's fine. Like, so what if they say they can't convince them they can, that's your power. We switch back to Brashen. I just want to say yeah. hashtag girl Boston Taglia. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we're back to Brashen. So they are winding down for the day and he wonders how many of the workers would return tomorrow can't blame them. He no longer understood why he himself stayed on. It wasn't his ship at risk, nor his nephew. When he asked himself why he continued, he came back to the negative that he had nothing better to do. Spring Eve had vanished, and there was no going back to that life, and seldom did he concede to himself that this was the only way he could be near Althea. Pride wouldn't let him concede that. She showed him less attention than she paid Clef. At least she smiled at the boy. He stole a glance at her. Everyone is exhausted and sweaty and plastered with, you know, the heat of the day. And all the work that they've done all day long. Mm -hmm. I think it's really funny because every time Brashen describes Althea, it's, he is so enamored with her, but the way he describes her is like a filthy little rat that's disgusting (laughs) and sweaty. Oh, so hot. And it just makes me giggle every time because it's so (laughs) like her sweat was plastered to her head. She had sand everywhere, but oh, so hot. And it's like, (laughs) that is not the way I would describe somebody I found hot, but okay. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) He reminded himself that she was all but promised to Greg Tanira. Tanira wasn't a bad hand. He'd be a wealthy man someday. Rashin tried to feel satisfaction for her. She could have done worse. She could have been content with a disinherited traitor's son. He shook his head and tossed his mallet to the sand. That's a day, he called abruptly. The light was fading anyways. Althea and Amber retired to the galley while Brashen paid out the crew. He lingers a little bit, toting up the figures and shaking his head over them. Veronica Vestret had given him a free hand with the funds to restore the Paragon. Althea had been surprised to find that his shipwright's knowledge extended far beyond what she would have expected of a mate. He had taken satisfaction in her surprise, but it did not make his task any easier. Do you think Efren Vestret taught him these skills, or is this something he learned because he was originally the Trell family heir? Maybe a bit of both. I mean, obviously, you learn to read, write, and do math, and all that sort of thing, but as first mate, he had probably a lot to do with, you know, directing everybody on the ship Fair, yeah, <laughs> and all of the, uh, the money and the materials. Like he'd have to like stock the quartermaster mm. to, you know, help them yeah, do repairs. Fair. Everyone's kind of answer. He's answering to the captain for everybody. Right. Fair. Yeah. Do you think he did payroll? <laughs> Maybe he might've delegated it out. Second mate or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but either way, he's he has to, you know, debate between the best quality materials or the best quality worksmen and craftsmen. Right. But will they even work on the ship? Right. Because his reputation is bad luck. Most of the shipwrights claimed that they were not superstitious, but that their other customers would turn away a man who had worked on such a ship. 
What excuse they gave didn't matter to Brashen. The delay did. Time was their greatest enemy. So it kind of goes over that the work must be timed with the tide once more. And basically at the end of the month, that's when an exceptionally high tide was there. So they had to get him out into the water then. Otherwise, they'd have to wait longer. Right. And time is of the essence here. And each job depends on the one before it. So you have to get this one done first and soon as possible. And if he's not floated, everything else grinds to a halt. Right. By the time he went to join the women, they were no longer in the galley. Side by side, he found them sitting on the slanting stern of the ship. Legs dangling, they could have been two ship's boys idling furtively. Amber had taken to binding her honey-colored hair back in a tail. It was not a flattering change. The bones of her cheeks and the line of her nose were too sharp to be feminine. In contrast, even with a smudge of tarry dirt down her cheek, Althea's profile made his heart turn over. She was not softly feminine. Instead, she was the female in a cat-like way that was as much threat as it was enticement, and she was unaware of it. She doesn't even know she's beautiful, Luke. You don't understand. <laughs> she's not like other girls, Emma. <laughs> I just, again, like... Yeah, even she though she's dirty. Soft, yeah, she's dirty, and she doesn't have a soft feminine face. But it is it is feminine. like Just in an aggressive way. Yeah, she's just aggressively feminine. <laughs> so weird. Describe her normal, please. <laughs> but here we have a description of Amber with hair tied back that is not flattering. Because it makes her face seem not very feminine. When Fitz describes the fool, it's just like, wow, the graceful ang- angles of the face. Yeah, literally, <laughs> Fitz describing fool is like, an angel carved this face. <laughs> Brashen describing the love of his life, Althea, dirty, cat-like. Well, I, I'm contrasting Brashen describing Amber, not Althea here. Fair. But no, I'm meaning yeah, people talking about yeah. somebody they care about. So Amber and Althea held teacups that steamed and a fat pot, ceramic pot, sat between them with an extra cup beside it. Brashen poured a cup for himself and there's a little bit of awkward silence and Amber speaks up into that and says, early start again tomorrow. Brashen's like, no, I think I'm going to be hunting for more workers. Althea groans, asks, what did I miss? And he clamps his jaw and just shakes his head. He's like, no, (laughs) more Paragon stuff. Althea rubs her temples and says, at least he was talking to you again. Not to us, Amber said dejectedly. He had lots to say to the crew, though. Mostly nasty whispered stuff before he got onto how their children would be born without legs and blind because they'd worked near a cursed ship. He was very descriptive. So they're kind of discussing here the the shortcomings of the plan and everything that's going wrong and the frustrations that are bubbling up. And... There's a little bit of a silence, and Amber asks sadly, Well, have we given up then? Brashen replies, Not quite yet. Let me finish this cup of tea while I ponder how hopeless it all is. Turns to look at Althea and asks, Where were you this morning? And she replies that she went to see Greg. Not that it's any any of his business. (laughs) (laughs) I thought Tanira was still in hiding. Price on his head and all that. Brashen's voice was very detached. He sipped his tea and looked at the water. He is. He found a way to send me word. I went to see him. Well, at least that solves one problem. When we run out of money, you can always turn him into the satrap's ministers. 
We can use the reward to hire still another work crew. He showed his teeth in a grin. Althea ignores him and tells Amber. Rag said he wished he could offer help to me, but his own situation makes everything difficult. His family got a fraction of what the Ophelia's cargo was worth, and they have resolved not to trade in Bingtown or Jamelia until the satrap rescinds the unfair tariffs. Didn't the Ophelia sail a few days ago? She did. Tommy thought it best to take her out of Bingtown Harbor before any more galleys arrived. So we're learning a little bit more about what is happening in Bingtown proper because this chapter has mostly been focused just on the Vestrits and Paragon. And it's important at this stage to keep up with those kinds of things because the third book is all about Bingtown politics, basically. So we learn a little bit more that, you know, the tariff ministers of the satraps are threatening to seize the ships. Um, they're claiming that the satrap can regulate where live ships trade and that rain wild goods can only be sold in Bingtown or Jamelia City. Doubt that they could enforce that, but Tommy saw no sense in waiting for trouble. So Ophelia is off and out into the sea once again. Brashen says, if it was me, I'd take her up the Rainwild River. Nothing except another live ship could follow her up there. That's the plan, isn't it? Greg will be smuggled up river on another live ship to rejoin them there. Am I right? Althea gave him a sidelong glance and a shrug. You don't trust me? I promise not to tell anyone. She looked out at the water. You think I'd pass the word about? He was outraged. What kind of man did she think he was? Did she really think he would let his rivalry with Greg go that far? Brashen. She sounded at the end of her patience. It is not that I don't trust you. I gave him my word to keep silent. I intend to keep it. I see. Oh, Brashen, your rivalry with Greg, huh? Yeah, that she clearly knows you have. It's so funny because he's like, clearly she knows how much I care about her. And then in her brain, she's like, he just sees me as an object or like, he doesn't even like me. And it's, whatever, you guys are so, just talk to each other, please. <laughs> so Althea is hesitating responding when Brashen asks, did he ask you to go with him? He knows I have to stay here. He even understands that I have to sail when the Paragon goes. I wish I could make Kefri understand that. She tries to change the subject here and just like talking about Kefria and like, oh, she's still squawking to mother that it isn't proper and blah, 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 blah. Brashen knew she was trying to change the subject. He couldn't leave it alone. Sure, Gregan knows. Gregan. Gregan. <laughs> Greg knows that you have to go after Vivacia, but he still asked you to come with him, didn't he? He still wanted you to go. You probably should. Cut your losses. Wager on the winner. None of the traders really expects us that we'll succeed. That's why none of them have offered help. They think it would be a waste of time and money. I'll bet Greg had all kinds of sound reasons why you should abandon us, including that we'll never get this derelict off the sand. He thudded his heels on the ship's hull. He felt a sudden, irrational rush of anger. Don't call him a derelict, Amber snapped, and stop whining, Althea added nastily. Rashen stared at her, outraged. Then he raised his voice in a shout. Derelict! Piece of beach junk, you hear me, Paragon? I'm talking about you. His words echoed off the sea cliffs behind him. Paragon made no reply. Amber scolds him. That isn't going to help anything. Now Thea asks him sarcastically, instead of starting quarrels with everyone, why don't you go panhandle some Sindon? We all know that's your real problem. 
Why does Althea start this fight if she cannot I have it dished back know. to her? I don't know. I'm I'm curious. Uh, do you think Brashen's anger is all his own? Because mm, they're all in Paragon. They all have a connection to Paragon. Yeah. They could feel each other's anger, I'm sure, through him. And Paragon is not happy right now in general. And he does call him a derelict, right? And then Paragon could just be outraged at that and could have leached into Brashen a bit. I don't know. He's not touching right? him with his bare skin. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily need to be the case yeah. for the feelings influence we know because of Wintro and Vivacia. Mm-hmm. Although that is a deeper connection and family bond. But but other crew, like Wintro's yeah. mentioned, other crew can feel changes as well. No, I actually kind of really like that. Because it's just, he felt a sudden irrational rush of anger. And yes, he is going through withdrawals right now and... He is emotionally volatile with a lot of stress and things happening. But in my mind, I think it just is nudged in that direction just a little bit more. Yes, he gets angry, but I think it's just helped along by other feelings. No, I I think you're right. I think that it probably is a little bit influenced by Paragon. Because right after it, too, don't call him a derelict, Amber snapped. And stop whining, Althea added nastily. Like, all three of them are feeling intense anger in that instant. Right. No, I think think that's a good call. I think that it could definitely be a byproduct of Paragon's mood. Everyone's mood. (laughs) Yeah, everybody being a little down in the dumps. But no, I, I think I think that definitely could be part of the case. I think it's also partially the withdrawal. Like, I do think the withdrawal is amplifying for sure his quick temper but and then like you said Althea starts a fight yeah well she it's the sindin she is a pot stirrer and you cannot convince me otherwise she just why don't you just go smoke crack druggie (laughs) literally (laughs) she's the worst she like I love Althea but she is the worst she just like picks and picks and picks and then is shocked Pikachu faced whenever anybody gives it back and she cannot handle and Brashen's actually pretty nice back he is like he he sets his cup down and says yeah I know what your real problem is. Althea's voice went soft and deadly. You do, do you? Well, why don't you tell us all plainly? Like, girl, you started this. There was no reason. She did not need to hit him below the belt like that. And he's like, oh, really? Do you want to play that game? And then she gets all angry. Like, why would you do this? Why would you do this to me? I've done nothing. I am an innocent saint. And he says, your real problem is that last winter you finally figured out who you are and you've spent every day since then trying to deny it. It scared you so you ran home to try and forget it. His words were so different from what she had expected that Althea was struck dumb. He almost grinned at her astonishment. She gawked up at him and he stood over her on the slanting deck. And to make it perfectly clear, he added in a softer voice, I'm not talking about anything that happened between you and me. I'm talking about what happened between you and yourself. And she's like, Brash and Trell, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know what? Like, good for him. Because he has been really mean so far. But that... He's never thrown that in her face, really. No, and that wasn't him throwing 
it, like he realized that she could have taken it that way. So he made sure that she it was clear. still takes it. She that way. still takes it that way. You're right. But like he's like, oh, she might think it's this thing. But I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about you and yourself. And you are too big of a baby to admit that you are not what you thought you were. And he's right. And he is being very kind about it honestly this little rub in her face isn't even a hit below the belt that's just a fact like yeah. it's not <laughs> just like you finally discovered what you were good at and what you liked and now you're not doing anything about it yeah you literally ran away from it so oh i don't know i feel like he could have been way meaner to her and he wasn't he was actually pretty kind <laughs> He's like, I have no idea what we're talking about. And he's like, you don't? Well, Amber does. Sure as saw has balls and tits, which is a hilarious saying. I love I that. Actually, yeah. Again, I'm, I've been converted. I yeah. am a follower <laughs> of Saw. And this is my new favorite Saw saying. And sure as saw has balls and tits. <laughs> I've known that she's known all about that since I got back to Bingtown. It was on her face the first time she looked at me. Funny that you'll talk to her about it, but not me. But I told you, that isn't the issue. You went out and found out you weren't a traitor's daughter. Oh, you're Efren Vestrit's daughter, all right, and no mistake about that. But you weren't bound to this damn town and its traditions any more than he was. He didn't like the cost of trading up the Rainwild River, so by saw, the man stopped trading there. He went out and found his own contacts and his own trade goods. You're like him, right down to the bone. If they wanted to weed that out of you, they're too late. You can't change that about yourself. You should stop pretending. You can't really settle down and be Greg Tanira's female half. It'll be- break both of your hearts if you try. You're never going to stay home and make babies for him while he goes out to sea. You talk big about family and duty and tradition, but the reason you're going after the Vivacia is that you want your own damn ship, and you intend to get out there and take it. If you can just find the guts to leave Bingtown again, that is. The words had spilled out of him. He found himself out of breath, almost panting. Althea stared up at him. He wanted so badly to reach down and pull her up into his arms. He'd kiss her. She'd probably break his jaw. I kind of feel like she would kiss him back. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. but then, but like for two seconds, which is like way too long. And then she'd push him away and go like, no, passion. Ew, gross. Yeah. Like, <laughs> wipe her hand against her mouth. Be like, I don't even like you. That last part. A little harsh, but oh, yeah, this is again, like his deep feelings, his inside thoughts. Yeah, but but still, where's the lie? <laughs> tough love here, and also he's not rubbing it in her face the way that she did. And again, like Althea can dish it, but she can't take it. So <laughs> she finally found her tongue. You could not be more wrong, she declared. But there was no strength in her words. Beside her, Amber hid her smile in her teacup. When Althea glared at her accusingly, she shrugged. Amber is eating this up. She is like... The tea, literally. Yes, literally the tea is piping hot in front of her. She, this is the best day of Amber's life. This is everything she wanted and more. I wish I could be Amber right now. That would be the best. (laughs) He feels a bit embarrassed all of a sudden and he just kind of clambers over the railing and drops lightly to the sand and walks off. That is so funny to me. He's like, you're never going to be happy. You need to stop lying to yourself. Dead silence. Althea's half-hearted. You're wrong. And then him, no response, just walks away off the beach. Like, Looks so cool. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. I love that reaction. He's like, oh, that's a little embarrassing. Uh, I'm just going to (laughs) go. So Brashen walks off and he notes that Clef has a small cook fire over there. 
And even though Ronica had invited them all to eat at the Vestrit household, he decided no. He didn't really feel comfortable leaving Paragon alone, but that had been a handy excuse. That was Amber's excuse, which was handy for Brashen to latch on to. Exactly. There was no way to conceal his anxiety. Sitting at a polite table would have strained him past the breaking point. So he goes up to Clef at his cooking fire and asks, So, what's for supper? Clef gave him a fish-eyed stare but didn't reply. Don't you start with me, boy, Brashen warned him, his temper flaring. Bash soup, sir. Clef scowled as he clacked the wooden spoon about in the pot. He looked at the soup as he defiantly muttered, He ain't junk. So that was what had tweaked the boy. Brashen softened his voice. No, Paragon isn't junk. So he shouldn't behave like beach junk. He turned to look up through the gathering darkness at the figurehead that loomed silently above them. He addressed Paragon more than the boy. He's a damn fine sailing ship. Before this is all over, he'll recall that. So will everyone else in Bingtown. Is he bad luck? Is he bad luck? Brashen corrected him wearily. No. He just had bad luck. From the very beginning. When you have bad luck, and then heap your own mistakes on top of it, sometimes you can feel like you'll never get out from under it. He laughed without humor. I speak from experience. You got bad luck? Brashen frowned. Speak plain, boy. If you're going to sail with me, you have to be able to make yourself understood. Clef snorted. I say, you got bad luck? It is not that different from what he said before, and it's so dumb of Brashen to be like, this is the line in the sand. Okay. (laughs) Brashen shrugged. Better than some, but worse than most. Turn your shirt about, my dad told me. Change your luck. Change your shirt. Brashen smiled. It's the only shirt I've got, lad. Wonder what that says about my luck. (laughs) That is a very funny thing. Mm -hmm. I kind of like it. I'm very surprised that it didn't end with, like, or switch to Kenneth here, just with, like, talking about luck so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. But we go back to Althea, who is fuming on the inside of the ship still. And she dumps her tea out. She's like, I'm going home. Farewell, Amber replied neutrally. <laughs> <laughs> Amber's like, okay, drama queen, whatever. And that was all the spark that Althea needed to spill the beans. <laughs> Literally, she's like, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> I always knew he'd throw that at me someday. I always knew it. It was what I feared all along. Amber was puzzled. Throw what at you? Even alone on the isolated ship, she lowered her voice. That I betted with him. He knows he can ruin me with that. All he has to do is brag to the right person. Or the wrong person. A glint came into Amber's eyes. I have heard people say some stupid things when they were frightened or hurt, but that is among the stupidest. Althea, I don't believe that man has ever considered that as a weapon. I don't think he is a braggart's nature, nor do I believe he would ever deliberately hurt you. An uncomfortable silence held for a time. Then she admitted, I know you're right. Sometimes I think I just want a reason to be angry with him. But why does he have to say such stupid things? Why does he have to ask me questions like that? Oh, Althea. I, like, she literally just admitted, yeah, I am just making up reasons to be mad at him, and I know that I'm wrong. Because I want to be mad at him. Girl, okay, what? don't, like, verbally abuse him and rub his drugs in his face. Yeah, why are you the way that you are? Like, <laughs> this whole this whole conversation going up boils down to, I wish we could go back to being friends and not just this weird thing that we are instead. And it's like, 
uh, what are you doing to facilitate that? Because so far you have refused to talk to him or look at him or treat him like a human being and then also make fun of him at every chance you can about his drug addiction. So now that we're in Althea's head, I want to point out something about Brashen's rant um, where he said that you don't care about family, even though you talk a big game, you just want a ship to sail. Uh-huh. And she like didn't refute any of that, nah. which is you know, so true. And we were talking about Malta's hints at lack of maturity in some of her parts. This uh, is still Althea's. Yeah. She's still a vestrate woman and extremely self-centered. Yeah. Extremely self-centered. I feel like that might be her Achilles heel. Yeah. Both hers and Malta. They're very similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only difference is Malta's more like Radhika. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway uh, well Amber asks after a little bit why does it upset you so much when he does ask those questions right and Althea shakes her head every time I start to feel good about what we're doing he and we had a good day today Amber damn him we worked hard and we worked well together it was like old times I know how he works and he, how he thinks it's like dancing with a good partner then just when I start thinking it's going to be comfortable between us again, he has to, he has to what? He has to ask me a question or he says something, <laughs> something more than get under that beam or pass me the mallet. Amber inquired sweetly. Althea smiled miserably. Exactly. Something that reminds me of how we used to talk when we were friends. I miss it. I wish we could go back to it. I just want to point out just when I think things could be comfortable he has to ruin it. By talking? You, you started this mess by saying, why don't you just go handle for drugs? Yeah. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I can't. I thought things could be normal again. And then he ruined it. You ruined it, Althea. You were weird. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Althea. And Amber's just like, why can't you go back to that? It wouldn't be right, Althea says. There's Greg now. and And what? And it could lead to more, I suppose. Even if it didn't, Greg wouldn't approve. Greg wouldn't approve of you having friends? Althea scowled. You know what I mean. Greg wouldn't like me being friends with Brashen. I don't mean polite friends. I mean as we used to be. Comfortable. Feet up and beer on the table. Amber laughed softly. Althea, in a short time, we're all going to sail off in his ship. Do you expect to use tea party manners with someone you work with each day? Once we sail, he won't be Brashen. He'll be the captain. He's already rubbed my nose in that. No one gets chummy with the captain. Then why are you worrying about it? It sounds to me like time will cure all. Althea spoke in a very low voice. Maybe I don't want it cured. Not that way. She looked at her hands. Maybe I need Brashen's friend- Brash's friendship more than Greg's approval. Amber shrugged one shoulder. Then maybe you should start talking to him again and say something more than here's the mallet. Good job on Amber leading Althea to introspect a little bit here and good job on Althea on recognizing, you know, some of her feelings that she's talked about for four chapters of like, I don't really like Greg, but maybe. Maybe I do like Greg. And then pretending. But Brashen is awful. (laughs) Yeah. And then pretending like, well, I can't talk to Brashen because Greg wouldn't like it. Like she cares. Like, okay. Yeah. So maybe some uh, development in the future instead of just annoying back and forth about that because i'm i was getting a little fed up 
See, yeah. this is this is completely off topic, but this is what annoys me about the Rainwild Chronicles is this will they won't leave the a back and forth kind of not even the tension between Althea and Brashen kind of relationship, mm-hmm. but like the Greg and Althea dynamic. And that's mm-hmm. what's chock full in the Rainwild Chronicles with like Tymira, Tats, and all the uh, Rapskull and yeah. the whole like, oh, the teenage love triangle kind of. <laughs> you don't like that part? No, no. I like that. It should have been two books instead of four. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. I do feel like it could have been three, not four, but. Ugh. I'm excited to read those because it has a ton of lore stuff and world yeah. building. Like, I think the most information that we get about a lot of things, but I am not looking forward to some of those character chapters. <laughs> yeah, there's. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it because I really like. I don't know. I feel like it has a good mix of. Piratiness and. Bingtown lore and yeah, like yeah. politics in a way that this book doesn't because it's a lot lower stakes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not as like the piratey side of things and the sneakiness of uh, the captain. He's not a pirate, but it makes me feel like it's piratey. Yeah. I feel like that is better because the main guy isn't the worst piece of trash you've ever mm-hmm. heard seen. That guy, that piece of trash, we don't have to see <laughs> in his head or right. sympathize with him. So yeah. I don't know. Anyways, back to this this book a little bit, this chapter. Yeah. Oh, Althea and Brashen, just... Just kiss already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they already did, but do it again. Clearly it didn't stick. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I really love Amber's reaction to it. I love... Oh, yeah. She's just loving and, everything in the background. Oh, yeah. But I also love that she is still being a good friend and isn't oh, like, yeah. I told you so. Yeah. <laughs> she's like... Okay, well, think about And why. also being a good friend of not just agreeing with Althea yes, and siding with her the whole time. That too. Making Althea think. I Like, I think it's really important that she's doing that. And I really like that aspect. Mm-hmm. Don't just be a yes man. Yeah. That's what good friends are not supposed to be yes men. They are supposed to challenge you. Challenge you. But I mean, obviously, your friends should like you and support you <laughs> in most things. But they should right. call you out when you need to be called out. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been a long one so far. Not our longest, but we've been having uh, quite a few long chapters recently. We just, it's, there's just so much to talk about, especially when you have multiple characters. It's like finally getting to the good stuff, yeah. right? It's not these depressing long setups things where, yes, they're very long. And yes, we spent a lot of time on those as well. But now we're getting to exciting parts where we can joke around a little bit more. Yes, I, I enjoy getting to laugh on these episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you all are laughing too. <laughs> We're just psychos laughing <laughs> when <laughs> it's like, silent. I just imagine everyone's horrified at us, especially when I'm like, yeah, I really enjoyed. <laughs> They're like, oh, God, what does she enjoy this week? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody who still listens to us yes. <laughs> and enjoys along with Emma here. <laughs> if you have thoughts on uh, on what we think about these chapters please let us know um if you have thoughts about the chapters yourselves or these plot lines also please write to us let us know what you're thinking yeah we really enjoy hearing from you and your perspectives so mm-hmm. please let us know or it is fitshappy at gmail.com if you want to email us 
Or of course, you can go to our website as well, where it is fitshappy.com. And there is a link at the top called More Links. You can find all of our socials up there as well. More places to listen to us. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, threads at isfitshappy on all of those. So thanks so much. Write to us. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Send us pet pictures. You know, also do that. The usual. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, because he just put them in proximity. Didn't even make them do stuff together. I guess, but <laughs> I don't know. And not that I'm saying Melissa is saying that's what's happening. This is just my opinion right, of right, right. the thought process. But I don't know. Yeah, Melissa specifically says she want, she wants to have the life of a male child. She wants a partner in her life that supports her dreams, not vice versa. And I feel that energy. So I get why she rails against Brashen, who is just trying to sort his life out and also wants to love her. She isn't ready for him just yet. She needs to be thrown into the fire and reforged into the woman she wants to be all on her own before she can ever let a man domesticate her. Which, yeah, that's how, kind of what we're reading, right? Yeah. That's Al- Althea needed to be gone for the year to, yes. to learn her own worth first. And now she's back on the ship and Brashen has to point out to her like, you already learned your worth. Stop running away from it now. Yeah. <laughs> confronting. No, I definitely agree. I think I think it is very astute to point out that they weren't ready for each other. And Althea did need that growth. She did need yeah. to prove to herself that she doesn't need a man, I think. And Brashen needed to prove to himself that he was worth something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and sadly. And <laughs> but yeah, I do think I do think that. That is true, too, though, that she needed that time apart. She needed that time to become her own woman. Right. So, yeah. We had some more. We'll we'll get back to Melissa's email. She has a second part about Malta here. But I think we have some more stuff about Althea that we should probably jump to and discuss, I think. We had some comments on Facebook. It kind of ties in, you know, we're talking about Althea. Might as well stick on that topic. I think we had some topics on um, Facebook, some comments from, let me see, from Ellen regarding if Althea thinks of Paragon as a person or not. Yes. I thought this was an interesting kind of back and forth from between Ellen and Degenhart because Ellen says, are we sure she knows how to think of someone as a person? Maybe <laughs> she thinks of everyone as a plot devices in her own story more than actual people themselves. Maybe she doesn't treat Paragon much worse than other people, but really could treat everyone better. And Dagenhart basically says, yeah, this, she is the hardest case of main character syndrome I've seen since Regal. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be recency bias, Dagenhart yes. admits. <laughs> but we've kind of touched on that too. She does. She's so self-centered. Yeah. We've talked how she has to insert herself into every single conversation, argument. If she's gaining any headway, she's like, but I have to be captain. But also me. But also me. And, and it's so true. You know, it's, it's something that she's still growing up. Yes. She went through the fire as Melissa put it. Yes. And she's learning more about herself, but now she just needs to become better socially (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah she still has a little bit bit of growing up a little bit more self-aware i mean she's still 19 you know no definitely she's a kid still i definitely feel like i don't know i feel like when you're a teenager it's really easy to be self-centered oh yeah 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 i mean in general it's really easy to be self-centered because you live with yourself 24 7 and so your point of view is the only one you ever truly get so it is really easy to forget that the world doesn't revolve around you and that not everything is about you. It's <laughs> not that uncommon, but it is a little humorous that we keep getting Althea. It's like, oh, she's being so good. And then all of a sudden, and there it is. She is really mean and not very 
And the needle drops. Polite yep. <laughs> to other people. Oh, Althea. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Ellen Degenhart and Melissa, for the conversation about Althea. Yes. Now, I think we'll finish up Melissa's email. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> we'll definitely. With Malta. Jump back in. Yeah. yeah. So she jumps over to a conversation about Malta, which is also very interesting. And we had a couple topics about Malta that we'll jump to after as well. But Melissa specifically talks about the question that you wrote on the Instagram post about Malta. Yes. And my question was, does Malta believe she will marry Rain at this point in the story? Because this was when they were... I think that they found out. Yeah, that they found out everything was happening and Malta mm-hmm. comes forward during this like brash and talking to them about what the costs are and how they probably can't afford it. She says, I will marry Rain. Yeah. Don't worry about the cost. Mm-hmm. So... So Melissa answers that question, basically saying, I think she has her blinders on and is zoned in on one man right now. And that man is Kyle. So it's basically no. Yes. Think that she's being super serious and she's being the most mature we've seen. And the answer to her prayers is getting Kyle home safely because he will not make her marry anybody (laughs) right and speaking of the self-centeredness that we saw in Althea there is that in this too because yes she wants her father back and she doesn't want him to be hurt or killed however she wants her father back mainly so that he can fix her life and fix all the problems that are happening she doesn't want a husband to control her she still thinks of courting as a game that she is happy to play for the foreseeable future the problem is that her world has changed and it's starting to sink in that she likely isn't going to get to have that life she was starting to want for herself anymore she's still holding out hope of course that getting kyle back will still fix everything so at this point she's not quite aware of how everything is out of control this chapter that we just read it's finally sinking in right but then it was new, it was fresh. And as she reflected on in this chapter, she was playing the, you know, the oh, heroine, the heroine of the story. Like, oh, I'll get my father back. I'll sacrifice everything. And then he'll come and save the day. And then she was just playing a part. Right. Right. Because he was still going to save the day. And now it's more real. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, during that chapter, it wasn't quite yet. So I, I totally agree with Melissa and I totally agree with her answer to your question that no, I don't think Malta was planning on marrying Rain. Right. I think she was planning on promising getting the money. Smart to make the decision like, oh, the caveat, my father has to attend the wedding. Yes. Yeah. And then <laughs> going to have him fix it. <laughs> right. And I did ask that question because we are not in Malta's point of view for that part of the right. chapter yeah so we are just seeing her as i believe it's althea caesar mm-hmm. or no it's kefria it's kefria. kefria kefria so very biased point of view and she seems so mature and put together and like she's really taking this seriously and while i do think she has matured a little bit i wasn't quite convinced that right. it was real necessarily And so I think Melissa's answer really captures the feelings that I had that I hadn't been able to quite put into words. And Malta's words this chapter in particular about it as well. Yeah. Right. Melissa also goes on to agree with me that 
Malta as a character isn't quite clicking with her. Just saying that everyone says she has an incredible arc, but I disagree. In so many ways, Malta remains the same dramatic, self-obsessed character throughout the entire series. Yes, she grows and changes, but the core Malta never really does change. It's her cleverness and manipulation that levels up, not her virtues that change. All that aside, she I think she really does secretly like Rain and that they're a good match because he's as dramatic as her. <laughs> yes, they're both living for the... And Melissa like, says, age creepiness aside, they are pretty good match in general. Yes. Yeah. Which, yeah. I yeah. think Malta's a good match with Serwin, like we talked about, because they're both so dramatic and over the yeah. top. But the mature downtrodden Malta is a good match with Rain. Yes. I think who Malta becomes because of the circumstances is better with yes. Rain. I think if the hardships never happen to the Vestrits, Serwin all the way. Mm-hmm. They right. are a match made in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> Or somewhere else. Or, yeah, well. <laughs> but it's interesting. Thank you for agreeing with me. I'm I, My jury's still out for me because I'm doing a closer reread and I haven't read these books in, in probably a few years now. So this is going over them with fresh eyes. Jury's still out for me on whether I think Malta has a great, you know, overall transformation. But right now, I'm agreeing with Melissa. The core of her is the same as when we started. Yeah. I will her say- actions are different. Yes. I do think I recently was watching a video essay on YouTube about character development and good, like how good writing creates that character development. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times what marks a good character development is not that the person changes from evil to good. It's the core of them is staying the same it's just how they use that changes yeah and so i think that's more of what happens with malta i think she is still that selfish self-centered manipulative person but the outcome is that she's using that for more or less good yeah yes it's still about herself definitely but i think who she is at the beginning of the book and who she is at the end. It's not unrealistic that she gets there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the magic of it. Right. Like, and that's what makes her feel more mature too. I think to readers is that she was so like, I don't care what happens to the others around me. I'm not thinking about any consequences. I am unrealistically in my head in La La Land trying to make this fantasy happen. And by the end, she understands more about reality, about how the Mm -hmm. world works and is using that to her advantage. Right. And I think that is a beautiful growth. And I think Definitely. that that is really important, but does it make her a great person? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Melissa. She finishes up the email with saying that she loves your accent for Clef. Yes. Thank you, Melissa. <laughs> and thinks it's more of like a commoner thing. But yes, it, it is hilarious to imagine everybody talking like that. I just love the idea of it so much. So good. <laughs> well, Jonah... Uh, Jonas also emails in and starts his email with the accent Emma pulls off really brings the character to a different dimension <laughs> with an emoji that implies <laughs> yes that it's, it's it's the laughing sweating emoji <laughs> yes which is my favorite emoji but <laughs> thank you anyway Jonas <laughs> <laughs> but Jonas also wants to talk about Malta here a little bit and I think this is for that same episode 
Jonas says, anyways, I the only thing I wanted to add on was the discussion about how sincere you think Malta is being. While manipulating is her second nature, I tend to lean towards her being very sincere in those particular scenes. I think she views people as her playthings often, but this is a crisis moment. Her father is in life or death trouble, and he's the only person she really loves more than herself. I think she shows real maturity in this scene. Of course, she's using ploys to get her way, but she's the most honest we've ever seen her in this trilogy, and she genuinely cares and acts genuine, I believe. It's very special circumstances, and she owns up to the occasion. So, I I can't remember if this was about the same chapter or if this was when she was talking to Rain. I think this is about the same chapter, though. I 178. So. And if we were reading 179 and I read this, I would agree with you. But reading, after reading this chapter where she admits that she was just playing up to the theatricality of everything. Yeah. Yes, it shows she was stepping up. Like you said, she has yeah. her, her main core tenets of her life. Her virtues have not changed. She's still self-centered and loves the drama of everything. Mm-hmm. But her actions, she was stepping up and playing the part, a better part, instead of just the damsel in distress, right? right. She was playing the heroine of the story that could fix things. Right. But she was still playing a part. Right. And I do believe it comes from her thought that only she can fix this problem. The other women in the room cannot help and will not try. And she's going to be the one to fix this problem. So I only partially agree with Jonas here. And that's that she was mature enough to pick a part that could help and was very helpful in that situation. Yeah. However, I don't. With her own admission, I don't think she was being the most mature in the situation that she could have been. But does that matter? Because we didn't get inside of her head. The outward True. actions that she took make it seem like this was the correct decision, no matter what she was feeling on the inside. Just to be clear, do you think she wasn't mature or she wasn't sincere? Mm, because I feel that's fair. like... Sincere. Okay. Sincere, yes. I feel like it was mature of her, even if it was an act, the fact that nobody could catch on. Yeah. Pretty mature. Definitely. Sincere? Sincere? Probably not. Yeah. Sincere in all of her emotions and everything? No. I think Malta's almost like a sociopath. (laughs) No, I don't. (laughs) No, she's not. But she doesn't have as strong emotions as she portrays. Right. And wields. Yeah, that's fair. So, yes, I think she was mature in the part that she chose to play, in the questions she was asking, and the role that she took on, and the way she led the discussion. It was a moment to step up, and she did step up into that moment and command the room for a while. I agree with you. She was not sincere in how she was going about that. Yeah. And I do think there was some sincerity at it. I think it was such a good act because... It oh, was yeah. a little real. She still cares for Kyle, like, yeah, immensely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. There's no question about that, but I agree. I don't think it was the most sincere. <laughs> Jonas also wrote in about another episode, and this would be the most recent put out, so 179. Yes. Um, and it is about Amber, well, Beloved, and music. music. Yeah, when, we were, when Amber carved the pipes for Paragon, we were talking, like... Wouldn't Amber know how to teach <laughs> Paragon some tunes? Oh, yeah. But, and then we and, were like, did yeah, Beloved we, ever play music? 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we talked about. I thought, yeah, yeah. I said that because there was a line in there that um, Paragon didn't know any songs. Right. And And I said, like, I guess Amber decided not to teach him. And you're like, does Amber know? That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) That's fair. But we did talk about. And Amber in that chapter says, you know, just let the music take you. You just decide. You yeah. play notes and it'll it's music to you. Mm-hmm. But Jonas has said they their immediate thought is that, of course, Amber or Beloved knows how to play music. Yeah, it's, but, it's Beloved, right? They know yeah. how to do everything. But then after thinking about it more... Can't um, recall there's no, there's yeah. no real instances of beloved having any music. Yeah, just quick-witted, and the wood shop in the white and the the mountain kingdom is just full of toys, not instruments. Just a tumbler. Nimble. Yeah, we don't really. I will say, beloved does sing songs to Fitz. True. Um, True. But those seem to be more mocking and not <laughs> melodious. <laughs> like yes. I don't think there's. A real melody. I think it's more of a sing-songy mocking. Right. But it is a song yeah. poem. So. So I think that just affirms our confusion in the uh, in the episode and really makes I don't know. Write in, tell us, let us know. Did you guys think, just off the top of your head, if you were asked, can beloved or the fool or amber play an instrument? Did you think yes or no? <laughs> and why? <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. I was like, no. It popped in my head. It was just like, of course. I feel like the reason it pops into the head of people is the idea of fool being a jester, like, is an entertainer, right? And so Mm -hmm. why wouldn't they be able to play a musical instrument in front of the king? But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, thanks for writing that in. I I couldn't remember anything specifically about that. So thanks for another confirmation there. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Jonas. I think we had a couple other comments on Facebook. First one from Ellen is saying, and Irene, saying that their edition of the book says piggyback instead of ours, which said pick a back. Yeah. And I have the, I just bought the, uh, uh, the ebook. Yeah. Luke has an ebook. I have a physical copy. Mine's the uh, second edition technically, but it's the, um, well, it's a soft cover. I don't know. It's a mass like trade book, right? Yeah. Let me from Bantam. The Bantam mass market edition from March, 2000. And it says on the front, this edition contains the complete text of the original hardcover edition. Not one word has been omitted. Yeah. So I don't know. We, we kind of looked it up. Both of us looked it up and it seems like there was piggyback said in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And that's when it that started seems being more when popular. It, yeah, that seems when it changed from pickaback to piggyback, but I have no idea why pickaback was a thing in the first place. Right. So like 1700s, I guess. Well, I did read something that said pickaback was a thing. It was like kids picking a back oh, uh, to ride like a game or something yeah and so it was you picked a back and then it just because the way language changes pick a back sounds became really close to piggy pig, it became picky back yeah and then, and then it just people said piggy so even though it doesn't make sense to have a piggy on your back it's because it <laughs> derived from which is cool and i enjoy learning stuff like that but it is a little 
funny that that would be that word specifically would be changed at all addition to addition why would it be added to begin with i don't know because both of our versions independent versions have pick a back and two other versions have piggyback yeah very strange interesting but thanks for the the confirmation that is different there yeah it's very interesting to hear so thank you Ellen also chimes in and says, I love the accent to you. Oh, yes. Way. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we uh, we talked about Ellen's cat, Sam, or Prill Cop, I guess, because of the, the changing <laughs> the color. color. Yeah. Uh, and Ellen did post a picture on Facebook uh, on comments for episode 178. So if you want to take a look at a cute cat. <laughs> yes, definitely go check out Sam slash Prill Cop. <laughs> and then... I guess to finish up some comments, we have something from Cookie Baker. Yeah. They have brought up the potential plot hole that is Clef. Yeah. I, I didn't think about this. So this is a really great thought to bring up here. Yeah. So the uh, Cookie Baker says, I wonder if it's a plot hole that Clef comes from the six duchies. If he was captured in a slave raid, it would be Chalcedians or out islanders who raided there. I thought the slaves in Bingtown were from further south on the way to Chalced. It doesn't make sense that they would buy slaves in Chalced. Yeah, so why why would Clef be picked up in a raid, go past Chalced, go to Bingtown, and then be then Devad Restart wants to sell him back to Chalced because he remarks on the fair eyes and blonde hair? Right, because if Chalced was the one that had taken him, if fair hair is something they like why wouldn't they have kept him right I, I don't know and we were talking about this kind of right before we started recording this section and you mentioned something about maybe they were fine with him going because he didn't have any manners or wasn't right. trained at all and we're fine with someone buying and i was just kind of like maybe devad restart just wanted a stable boy <laughs> i don't know yeah but it is really it is a really good question of why where yeah. And why? How did he end up there? Because his parents are dead. His dad was a fisherman and he went out on his boat. But a fisherman doesn't go past another country. Right. Right? Like, yeah, you're, like not, they you're don't... not leaving your duchy to go past Chelsea for an afternoon fish. Right. And fisherman doesn't imply that he is selling those fish in a market that is outside of where he's yeah. from. And he does have the mention that his town was attacked. So it would be a slave raid which as far as we know, Bingtown or Jamalia, Jamalia, sorry, does not do. That's Chalced. Right. So. Well, uh, Jamalia does too. They uh, do? Yeah, against it, the pirate settlements. I thought that was all Chalced. No, um, both of them do. Mm, so I guess maybe, but what were they doing all the way up there to begin with? Yeah, I, I don't know. Because Jamalia is way farther south. So yeah. why would they go past Chalced to raid the six duchies. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. So thank you very much for bringing it up because he's just a big question mark now in my mind. Yeah. Where did he come from? Where did he go? Where did he come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Cotton Eye Clef. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I do like the question though, but now it's going to bug me because yeah, I yeah. don't know. Is there an explanation? Maybe Probably a little not. little short story. Maybe I'm, someone can write a fanfic or something about. <laughs> I'm adding that to my journey. list of unimportant questions to ask Robin Hobb <laughs> if we ever get her on the podcast. <laughs> you should, you should, or somebody, I guess, 
should listen to to all of our episodes and write down any time that Emma has one of those questions. We need we need a list of all those. Something I about Barrel Guy. Um, yeah, true, true. This is such a like a deep cut. If anybody has not listened to our first episodes, they would not know. I sometimes even forget Barrel Guy exists. So, or know. what was it? Jason? That Jason, was the guard from yeah. like the first chapter ever. We love that. Mm. Love a fantasy name that is Jason Kyle. <laughs> yeah, it's good. So good. Like, oh yes, my my grandfather dropped me off to go to chivalry, but instead I met his brother Verity and his half brother Regal, and I was left with Birik, who passed, who got him from Jason. <laughs> so good. <laughs> uh, anyway. Thank you, Cookie Baker. Thank you to everyone who has written in. It is so fun to hear your guys' opinions. We love hearing from you guys. So keep it coming, and we will see you next week. 